Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people and Emily Jashinsky once a month. Uh, <laughs> we got to break her out from the group of interesting people every week now, every month now. Um, Emily Jashinsky, if you're not aware, is the culture editor over at The Federalist. She does a show with Ryan Grimm called Counterpoints on Crystal and Sager's Breaking Points. Um, and she's a fellow with us at IWF, a senior fellow with us. Um, and she's also got lots of hats and generally a media commentator and uh, a woman of, of many talents. So welcome back every every month. It's it's that last week of the month again, Emily. It's my favorite week, Inez. And I was going to say, I love that illustration so much. If people are watching, they see both of our heads come into the picture during the theme song. But I just realized <laughs> that that picture of me is from college. <laughs> yeah, my picture, I think, is also like five years old. I have I saw the end of my blonde hair that I briefly had. You had great blonde um, hair. Fun, fun times. Uh, so we got uh, quite a quite a docket today. I don't know if we'll get to all of it, but um, I wanted to start by asking you, since you're, you're the perfect person to comment on Fannie Willis and, and uh, her affairs in Georgia, not because you're a political commentator, Emily, or that you have particular insights on the political condition of the United States, as you do, but because you are an avid watcher of The Real Housewives. And this is what this, this feels like. It feels like a Maury episode you know, old Dr. Phil before he got interested in more serious subjects. That's what this is starting to feel like. So like, what's, what is your take on the fact that, that literally they thought that they could get away with blatant corruption and scandal while breaking the norm of prosecuting the domestic political opposition. And they're not even on reality television. I mean, that's the sad part is they're acting like reality television stars without actually being on reality television where your motivation is to act like a jerk um, because it gets you all kinds of money and attention and followers on social media and you can, you know, do various other things. They're not on reality TV. Uh, I guess it speaks and as to the fact that basically we're all on reality TV all the time. <laughs> now, like, we're just in the giant corporate panopticon and everybody's filming us and uh, extracting, you know, resources and, and wealth from uh, all the crazy things all of us do, whether it's Barstool or uh, Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis. It's pronounced Fonny, isn't it? Oh, I, I've been saying Fanny, but... I know, I have too. Okay, so Fanny, Fanny, Willis, um, incredible. And you, independently of me, came to the Real Housewives conclusion. I had actually, just 24 hours earlier, said the same thing uh, because it's so obvious, like... It's they are layering lies on top of lies. It reminds me of when you like get in trouble for not finishing your book report and you decide, I'm just going to say that I did my book report. I put it on the teacher's desk and the teacher's like, I don't have it. And you're like, that's crazy because I put it there. And your lie just has to keep on like getting weirder and weirder to cover for all of the questions. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it in court. They're doing it in court. It's just and the, the other thing that boggles my mind is Fannie Wills, Fannie Wills is on tape saying that she would crack down on corruption so you wouldn't have you know people sleeping with each other in the DA's office. I mean, it, it, it's Shakespearean. Yeah, there's there's this latest uh, sort of development in this, this case, which I am quite frankly starting to have difficulty following because I'm not a fan of cringe comedy and <laughs> I can't watch like really? people humiliate themselves. Um, it just like, it, it, I cringe too hard. Uh, so this case is becoming difficult to even keep an eye on because I just I just like collapse into myself every time I read a transcript from it. But um, the 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 bombshell recent bombshell development is that 
uh, they were able, um, the Trump team was able to subpoena a from the, the cell phone tower the fact that uh, this guy was uh, visiting Fonnie Willis in the vicinity of her home uh, overnight multiple times before they uh, both acknowledged that their affair began. Uh, so this would put it earlier and therefore more corrupt and inappropriate um, when, when what's his name, Dwayne? I don't even remember. Dwayne. Is, I don't know. Dwayne is one of the names, but I can't remember if it's first or last name. Anyway. <laughs> anyway the, I, the whole thing is just ridiculous. It's compounded. The ridiculousness is, look, this could happen. I mean, I know stuff like this does happen. It's not, you know, shocking that uh, there are DAs having affairs and hiring their lovers. Um, that doesn't, that itself doesn't shock me. Uh, who among us? Who, yeah, I mean, whatever, right? Uh, no, but the fact that they thought they could get away with this, obviously this was going to be a high-profile case. You were prosecuting the former president of the United States. Um, and the fact that they felt empowered to do this kind of obvious uh, corruption and something that's so like scandalous and juicy and sort of tabloid level, uh, the fact that they they felt like they could get away with doing that while doing this potentially like the most high profile prosecution, um, you know, in American history, it's it's like I think I, I put this on Twitter, but it's um, it's kind of like Real Housewives crossing the Rubicon. Like I, I, it's just this this very bizarre and justified, as a lot of your media commentary has pointed out justified sense that because they're on the left they can get away with literally anything that's a good point actually i wonder to the extent but i actually wonder how that factored into their decision making to the extent they actually intentionally made decisions here which honestly they clearly did because we're talking about a pattern over months of uh vacation decisions uh, nighttime decisions of, you know, it, it was clearly like it, they had time to pause and, and think about what they were doing. So I actually wonder to what extent um, the fact that Fannie Willis was uh, on a roll. I mean, her career had momentum. She was uh, treated like a VIP in the community. Um, it, it, I actually genuinely am, am interested in that. And Megan Kelly made a very good point yesterday, which is that this case I know that Donald Trump is up against a bunch of different cases. Uh, this case, like many of them, but this case in particular, has like serious electoral implications. It could determine uh, in, in some big part who the president of the United States is, who the leader of the free world is. We're not talking about some like run-of-the-mill uh, corruption case in uh, Honduras. Like This is a very, very big deal. And uh, it, it just proves Trump right. Like His critics over and over again just prove him right about the rampant corruption and the audacity of a, a democratic party of a left that is completely lacking uh, in the sort of oversight that their counterpoints counterparts on the right get, um, just by virtue of you know being hated by the media. Yeah, I mean, it, it is like when you take a step back again, it is shocking that that they thought that they could get away with this given the profile of the case, but they don't even seem to think that then that that bringing this case is controversial right yeah. they should know that bringing this case is is controversial it's norm breaking to use the the favorite phrase of of uh, i i love uh, by the way 
one of the things that I inherited from Red listening to Red Scare is uh, Anna Kachian saying WAPO mm. instead of WAPO, which I just find so charming because it shows how nobody actually knows uh, what women. the Washington Post refers to itself as, which I just I just enjoy. And you know, coming from DC, is it was women. always WAPO, 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 and I am now calling it WAPO. Uh, women can't read. Me. Huh? Women can't read. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, but it's, it, <laughs> I, I don't know how much more we can even do on this trial, but it does strike me like the serious part of, of watching this is that there's not really any even consideration of the fact that breaking these norms is serious. Uh, and that mm -hmm. like, if you go, you proceed forward with breaking these kinds of norms, you better have all of your ducks in a row and you probably shouldn't have gone on a bunch of luxurious vacations with your lover that you hired on for vastly inflated hourly rates. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> you probably should clean that stuff up uh, before you bring this level of norm breaking case that there's just no recognition of the seriousness of it at all. I was thinking about this the other day when I was reading this Associated Press report on uh, the uh, Letitia James case in New York with Angoron overseeing it. And the Associated Press did this long review of every time that law has been enforced in the state of New York. And they concluded that it was utterly without precedent. I think the New York Times did a similar investigation, but basically like this, this is not how the rule is enforced. I think actually the way it's written, um, you can you can understand where Trump is in trouble because I, I think probably it's this, a, this a is his his real estate evaluation case fraud right case in New York yeah right yeah it's a poorly written uh, law but uh, it's it's never been implemented in a way where they're essentially victimless crimes uh, it is a victimless crime because the alleged victims said they didn't feel victimized and that they aren't victims and they were happy to make money off of Donald Trump uh, but. It, it just reminded me of like, I was thinking about this in the similar way to the Fannie Willis case. Like the majority of the coverage of Fannie Willis is not critical. Uh, it, it's, you know, there's there's so much of it that is fawning. There was so much coverage of Letitia James and Engeron that was fawning. And what's going to happen is we're going to get an article or two that's really well reported and investigated about how absurd the RICO charges against Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and other people are, how corrupt the RICO charges are. Social justice advocates would be incensed about these RICO charges and have been in the case of Fannie Willis uh, when it comes to RICO charges against, isn't there a rapper that she like cooked up a RICO case against? Um, I mean, it's just the whole thing is a joke. But if the media does its job, you know, one out of 10 times, uh, and then just like, well, yeah, my my hands are tied. You know, I did what I could do. We just don't have a serious conversation about any of this stuff. Like her, the picture of of her prosecution of this case right now is that it was done with hypocrisy, corruption, and incompetence, and that's and and partisanship. So that's that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in New York, they're outright because of the the um, sort of novelty of of using the law in this way, the fraud statute in this way, you know, they're finding themselves like quite trying to reassure a lot of businessmen in New York who are not Donald Trump, right? Oh, actually, we were just going after Donald Trump. You don't have to worry about this, which is like you, you shouldn't be saying that. You shouldn't be saying that out loud. Like we are only going to use this interpretation of the law against Donald Trump. Uh, but that's a position that the, the New York... 
um, office finds itself in because uh, apparently everybody, every everyone conducting themselves in the real estate market in New York is over evaluating right their their assets are are um, when they're up applying for loans. And as you point out, there's no actual victim in this case because the banks know that people are over evaluating their loans, which is why or their assets for these like favorable loan rates, which is why they, they testified to investigation. It. This is like a standard practice in business that only Donald Trump is being prosecuted for. Um, but yeah, again, there's like no sense of seriousness and what that means, like where you have uh, people from the DA's office just casually saying, no, 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 don't worry. Like business community of New York, we only, we only did this various style. We found our, you know, we, we pointed out our man and we found our crime. We're not interested in prosecuting you for this crime, even though this behavior is rampant and common um, in business transactions, right? And they're just, they're saying that out loud with absolutely no seriousness. It's insane. And like, again, it's really, really, really unhealthy. It's pushing us to such an unhealthy place and we're just whistling past the graveyard. Um, I want to, I want to turn to, uh, I think the two, the two things on our docket that are more serious are this this case, although I hesitate to call it. It's kind of that weird blend of total unseriousness and like we said, like the Real Housewives reality <laughs> TV aspect of it with the absolute dead seriousness of prosecuting your political opposition like this is freaking Venezuela. Um, but the, the other like serious thing I want to bring up before we have a little more fun with some of the rest of the topics, I think Um is is the net choice cases uh, before the court? Um, there's a pair of them; they're being heard together. One is from Texas, one is from Florida. These are states that have attempted to regulate social media companies. Um, in the case of Texas, it's a more broad regulation about viewpoint discrimination um, and trying to ban viewpoint discrimination, or at least to make. Um, and there are different aspects of the law to make the terms of service really clear and evenly applied. Um, and then in Florida, it, the regulation has more to do. It's clearly after Donald Trump. Um, this is a law that, that went into effect and was passed after Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter, um, after January 6th in, in uh, 2020, so, or 2021. So, um, this is, this is, this law is aimed at making sure that public officials, anyone running for office, um, cannot be, I think it's cannot be suspended from longer than 60 days. And there's like certain restrictions around elections, a very, very reasonable piece of legislation. And I think you are going to see a very split. And the reason I, I break this stuff out is I think you are going to see a like potentially one of those cases where there's no clear majority and there are different combinations of justices that agree or disagree on different aspects of this uh, this case. And you're not going to get like a clear voice uh, coming from the court with like, this is the new doctrine on this. But um, I think this this raises some really interesting legal questions. You know, um, one being what exactly is, what is the right analogy for social media companies? What slot in a law do they fit into? Because in these cases, the social media companies are, are saying that their First Amendment rights are being violated by these regulations. And they're pointing to uh, this, this case about the Miami Herald from the 1970s about op-ed pages, right? And how the government cannot force a newspaper to run, you know, opposing op-eds that, that the newspaper has the First Amendment right to curate its content um, of its opinion pages, right? 
which is fine so far as that goes. But we know that these same companies will turn around and argue that in the case of Section 230 and the kind of exemption from liability that they have for things that people are posting on their websites that are potentially defamatory or illegal, um, they will turn around and say, no, 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 we're not like the New York Times. We're not curating an op-ed page. We are a neutral forum for people to post their content and might, they might be responsible for defamation, but we, the company, are not. Like They might be responsible for breaking the child porn laws, for example, but we, the company, are not responsible um, for that the way that the New York Times would be responsible for publishing something defamatory, right? Um, so they, they kind of want it both ways. In this case, they're they're arguing that they're more like the op-ed page. So one, one of the questions the court is going to have to resolve, and I think it's going to take more than a few cases, um, is going to be what what is the best analogy, right? Are these companies more like an op-ed page? Are they more like a common carrier? Are they more like the telephone company that can't hang up your conversation because you say something to your friend uh, that they don't, the, the uh, company doesn't approve of, right? Are they closer? That's something that Justice Thomas has argued in a bunch of dissents. The second spectrum that I think is going to have to be worked out, um, and you'll forgive me for going on a little bit longer about this, but I, I just, I know it's helpful. Are legal issues that are, they're, they're both legal and they're cultural. Like we are going to have to find a new framework for this, essentially this new kind of service, this new kind of platform. Um, and the second spectrum that I expect the court is to deal with, it deals with last term's case 303 Creative, where you're talking about the First Amendment rights of an individual proprietor, a woman who sells her services making uh, wedding websites in the open market, and then says, no, you know, my customer can't make me make a gay you know, wedding website, right? Because it goes against my personal beliefs, my religious beliefs, my First Amendment rights. Um, and laughably in the lower court, they they called this woman a monopoly, a monopoly of one. And that was the justification in the lower courts. Ultimately, the Supreme Court overturned that. But um, they said, no, 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 because you you make a very special wedding website. It's a very, it's, it's a unique product, right? So you have a natural monopoly and therefore you must serve all comers and do whatever people want. Um, the, the Supreme Court knocked that down. You know, in the middle, you have something like Hobby Lobby, which again, the Supreme Court ruled corporation, the corporation in this case is a person, right? It has First Amendment rights. That's a family held, a privately held company. And then on the opposite end, like the total opposite end on the, of the spectrum from 303 Creative and from an individual proprietor is a publicly traded company like Alphabet or, you know, Twitter, right? Um, and that that is like a different type of entity, a different type of structure. But until now, um, the courts have said generally there are some First Amendment rights that attach to the corporation. I think that's something probably that the right end of the, the court is going to have to reconsider in a lot of these cases because what we have is this very real tension between people's right to speak and in the modern world that means having some access to at least some forum online and essentially collusion both between the government and these companies and between these companies themselves to simply eliminate some voices from the digital public square or to eliminate certain viewpoints from the digital public square. This is what censorship looks like in the 21st century. And it's, I don't know, it's very interesting to me, but again, both legally and culturally, because 
it doesn't quite fit into any of our structures. It's not, it is legitimately novel in that sense that both are, are all of this stuff, antitrust structure is not designed to deal with this, right? Our, our public accommodations law is not designed to deal with viewpoint um, for, for good reason in some, in some cases, right? Or at least to some extent. Um, like First Amendment law and how it applies to corporations versus people is not designed really to take into account what is like observably the case, which is that social media companies now essentially own a private uh, town square. Right. So all of these things are coming. I don't know. I think this is going to be the work of probably decades of the court and refining yet another sort of doctrine, probably with balancing tests underneath it uh, to determine where the balance of all of these things falls between First Amendment protections, between the, the purpose of the First Amendment to begin with, to be able to have a citizenry that's able to express itself and determine truth and falsity without uh, undue censorship. Like all of these things are in conflict in a big stew here. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how the court breaks this down, although I'm not particularly optimistic about this particular case. Let me be crude. Like it sucks. It actually really sucks because uh, there is going to be uh, a lot of strife and not, you know, in a, obviously there's some strife, but our institutions can't keep up with our technology and, uh, that's, you know, Brandeis did this with privacy and photography, and we are still obviously dealing with privacy and photography uh, now, especially when it comes to surveillance and social media and facial recognition. Uh, so the technology is just evolving so fast. And there are some kind of bedrock principles that the court has worked out when it comes to speech. You know, it had to do this when it came to rails, as as Clarence Thomas has talked about, when it came to telecom. As the technology has changed, we have had institutions catch up. We've had the courts catch up. And and that's, you know, that, that's happened since the country began. Uh, you know, this is, the, our institutions have to be built to adapt to some degree, maybe not uh, so quickly um, as, as Madison warned against, but they also can't be too slow because if they're too slow, uh, you you kind of get people's lives uh, being lost in the mix and you get sort of functioning becoming impossible. And the rate of change in technology just over the last five years, I mean, if you talk to people who are working in the generative AI space, they're like, this is a, a day by day uh, rapid rate of change. We're not talking year over year. We're not talking decade over decade. We're literally talking that this technology is evolving leaps and bounds, sometimes on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And so I think it's just going to get a lot worse. Uh, and Alito had a really interesting question. I think this was to the Net Choice attorney about uh, whether or not Gmail, uh, if it didn't like a message that was being sent could just boot someone off of the platform could say you can't you, you can't email uh, about why you like Donald Trump on Gmail and the attorney did not have a good answer to that question but I think basically said well you know maybe uh, so uh, to me the bedrock principle here is natural monopolies and the tech companies have sort of muddied the waters by arguing that Facebook is a competitor to Twitter um, which you know really makes their argument for uh, buying up and consolidating Instagram not work very well either. Uh, so they've been trying this argument that every social media channel is a competitor to every social media channel because they're just social media. It's a ridiculous argument. Uh, but uh, there are some you know, serious questions. And I just fear, Inez, that because of the way 
uh, our sort of political system is structured right now. Um, people with bad interests, you know, we don't have consensus, uh, cultural consensus right now on what constitutes, you know, uh, what, what constitutes uh, violence versus speech. And in a, a culture like that, uh, not only is it, it bad that you have so many revolving door problems um, between tech and government and regulators, uh, but on top of that, you just have such division and uh, cultural strife that I'm really afraid of the way uh, this is going to evolve. But the case is a really interesting one. Yeah, to your point about the cultural lines, I mean, some of the questions from the liberal justices were actually more skeptical. Um, and I, that's why I think you may get a very interesting mishmash out of these cases. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you I, I about the natural <laughs> monopoly aspect. I, I do think that Facebook and Twitter are competitors um, and that they're providing some kind, that they like somehow are providing a similar product, even if, because we, we talk about that, you know, Every service is is different. I mean, you could say that even two streaming services with a different catalogs, right, are non-competitive in the sense that if you want to watch one show, it's on that, right? But they 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 are all in the category of streaming. So I'm not sure I find that. And then I think that's actually part of the reason that I find the common carrier uh, route that Justice Thomas is taking, despite him being my absolute favorite legal reason. So I'm like very open to being convinced by him, but. I'm not sure that's the right way to go about dealing with this only because the problem doesn't begin and, and end with social media companies, right? So like, as that question pointed out about Gmail, we are actually talking about a larger phenomenon in which competitors, clear competitors in a market, like let's say banking, um, just a traditional kind of non-new techie, whatever, right? Just like a traditional uh, market where you have we would not say that there's anybody who has a, a monopoly natural or otherwise, because, you know, you have Wells Fargo and Bank of America and blah, blah, blah. Right. And what you're actually talking about is a situation in which all of the competitors for non-financial reasons all decide to exclude a certain part of the customer base. Right. And mm -hmm. to me, that looks a lot more like heart of Atlanta. That, that looks a lot more like the green book South. And the fact that every motel on, you know, whatever, on Highway 10, um, in, in all of the southern states for hundreds of miles, could be counted on to exclude black customers. So, like, there wasn't any one hotel or chain was not taking the hit where you would naturally think that the market forces would work that way, right? Like, if there's a bunch of people willing to pay for a service... Um, and one company doesn't serve them, then we would think the market should work, quote unquote, and another one should pop up. And what we're seeing repeatedly in social media, it's just most obvious, is that because of the political alignment and cultural alignment of the people who own and work for these companies, they're not, they're all willing to ban the same people, right? So like if Twitter decided to kick off, let's say everybody who thinks that COVID came from a lab. Okay. Um, you would think that in a natural market atmosphere that the other companies, Facebook, Instagram, wherever, um, would all gladly take those people, however many millions of people, and they would say, well, okay, well, if you don't want to serve these people and give them ads and, and make money off of the time that they're spending on social media, well, then we will. 
Um, and what we're seeing repeatedly is that doesn't happen because the people who run Facebook and the people who run Twitter before Elon Musk, right, they agree on who ought not to be uh, listened to. And then there's the additional layer on top of it where the government is saying or hinting very strongly, if you know what's good for you, you will exclude these views. So it's it's just like, I'm not sure that the common carrier structure is really the right bucket for this. But then again, not, none of these things, and that's kind of the point, none of these things fits perfectly. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in the camp that the best structure that fits the problem is probably public accommodations, but hmm. you know, there's a reason we want a limited number of characteristics uh, that we force people to do business regardless of, right? right? I mean, and there would have to be all kinds of complications like what about actually ideological organizations, if you're selling hot dogs and you're discriminating on the basis of viewpoint, okay, maybe maybe we should impinge on people's freedom to do that if it's becoming this level of problem. But I mean, what are you going to do? Tell CAP and the Heritage Foundation that they have to hire indiscriminately on the basis of viewpoint? I mean, that's patently absurd. The entire point of the organization, or, or even more so, like you're going to tell Democrats and Republicans in Congress that they can't hire staff that aligns with them ideologically? Like there are businesses and and market uh constructions that are the whole point is ideological and then you have things in between where it's kind of shaded one way ideological and and there's tons of products like that right that are are tractor you know ads go one way politically they're trying to appeal to a certain kind of person and like ads for lattes go the other right so it's just it really is this morass of you know <laughs> How much are we willing to restrict people's liberty to choose who they do business with on the basis of this equally important value that we need to be able to have public discussion with viewpoints of Americans actually represented and not censored, whether directly by the government or indirectly through private companies? It really is like a difficult balancing thing. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think the Green Book comparison is a really good one because that's another time in our country's history when we didn't share a consensus cultural position uh, on what sort of unacceptable racism was. And that made it really difficult to uh, sort of figure out this legal spider's web. Um, and, and I think that's another thing now, because like if we still shared as a culture, if, if the people who believed that uh, voting for Donald Trump is necessarily a racist act, even if you're black. If the people who believed that still only existed on the fringes of, uh, you know, Oberlin in the faculty lounge, we wouldn't have this problem. And that changed. And so now we have this problem. And now we have, you know, what happened to Parler with uh, the the Apple podcast platform. Um, so it is, I don't disagree with you. I think it is really, really tricky and difficult. Um, and that's part of the other problem here is, um, you, before we started taping, I said, it actually kind of reminds me like exactly how you described the problem. It reminds me of the problem with IVF, uh, which is a huge topic of conversation right now too, which is that these are legally really, they're not clear cut. They're not simple. They're not easy. There isn't like an obvious conservative or liberal solution um, and I, I just, what scares me is that I don't think we're going to be able to come to conclusions uh, or get any sort of sense of legal or moral clarity or cultural consensus on these things in this culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, IVF is a, an interesting subject in itself. Um, it's, 
it is interesting to me how many, and I totally believe the polling that's coming out that shows that like even the people who identify as pro-life overwhelmingly support IVF. And I, I, I wonder how much that has to do with people not knowing what happens during mm-hmm. IVF. Um, because to me, as, as somebody who's like a moderate on abortion and therefore doesn't really like have a, a certain, at least on that front, I don't have a problem with IVF. I might have other ethical issues uh, going into IVF, but it's the same thing as early abortion. You are creating a bunch of embryos. You're discarding the ones that are quote unquote, not viable for all kinds of reasons. And then you're implanting what's left in a serial uh, way where like, oftentimes there's just viable embryos left and people either freeze them and pay a huge amount of money and sort of put them in this weird suspension indefinitely or well, um, they discard them, right? And and the embryos die. And those are, if you're pro-life from conception, like this is a process that, that kills early embryonic human life. Um, and I don't, first of all, I don't know how many people really know that, um, because there is theoretically a way to do this that, that yes. is compatible with a pro-life position, but most clinics won't do it because it's enormously expensive. One, it, it damages their numbers because it makes it much less successful uh, to do it in that way. Um, and so essentially the couples that are doing it are paying above and beyond. They're finding particular providers. Um, you know, it's it's not the norm for the industry. Yep. But it, But it does highlight like, there's an issue of eugenics here. Like people are choosing among their embryos. And from what I hear from people in the genetics field, like, you know, millionaires and billionaires are already at the place where even for, if they don't have any trouble with fertility, they're purposely having children through IVF so that they can select on certain traits, um, that they can genetically screen the embryos, right. And run the entire DNA sequence and, you know, choose the, the embryos that they, they would prefer, Yep. to to have like this is this is eugenics and it's it's already happening um yep. and it's normalized like that's one of those strange things since the alabama ruling came down which is obviously what uh induced this entire conversation um because that that case is so fascinating and as i know you read the details of it about how you have someone literally picking up the embryos from the cryogenic freezer and dropping them because they got burned on their hand. Uh, they got frostbite on their hand because they dipped into a cryogenic freezer. And so they dropped the embryos and then the owners of the embryos, the parents of the embryos filed a wrongful death suit. Uh, and, and you yourself and said something so interesting when you were talking about it, that the embryos, if you discard them, what what is the language for that? And I'm not acting like it's easy. I mean, from my position, I think it's clear um, that you've terminated, you've you've killed the fertilized embryo. Uh, but but I understand that a petri dish uh, with a, a fertilized embryo in it is completely different than a developing baby in a womb or a delivered baby. I, I completely understand that, and I get that. And I think the pro life movement needs to lead with exactly what you said. There are different ways to do IVF. They might not be as profitable, um, but because this got normalized really quickly, just like the speech regulation got normalized really quickly after 2016. These platforms were not engaging in censorship the way that they did in, when the switch flipped in 2016 because they suddenly got hit with political pressure. Uh, the pro-life movement should, should lead with the reality that there is a way for IVF to be done 
ethically, uh, where you're not, you know, discarding fertilized embryos, which a lot of women say, a lot of men say, that's a very difficult thing to do because you've created uh, unique DNA. Uh, this is another really with with your DNA. Christopher Hitchens uh, is one of the people who, you know, he passed away before you know, we went into overdrive with the acceleration of this technology. But he wrote a lot about uh, and thought a lot about abortion. And he always challenged the left. Even Naomi Wolf, when she was in her sort of feminist heyday, wrote about this for, I think it was uh, the New Republic in the late 90s. If you are fertilizing an egg, you're creating a unique uh, DNA. So what happens when that goes away, whether it's whether it's miscarried, uh, whether it fails to implant, whether it's snuffed out in a Petri dish, whether it's aborted with a pill? What, what language do we use for that? Do we say terminate? Do we, the point is a unique individual was created and then it was it goes away. I think the right language to that is is killed. Um, but I understand why when you're talking about a Petri dish, it's different than looking at a, a fully formed or a you know, forming uh, human baby in the womb or outside of the womb. So I understand that it's complicated, but it, I just think it happens so quickly and it got normalized so quickly. There are a lot of profits involved and there are a lot of genuinely desperate people involved uh, who who came to see this miracle Um and it, we, it was, again, it was like as a culture, we didn't pause to think about it because the experts, the hyper-secular experts were telling us it was okay. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that um, how far the conversation, the ethical conversation about, the difficult ethical conversation about some of this stuff has degraded even since the 2000s, right? Where under George W. Bush, um, mm. there was the whole debate over stem cell research, like Very there was bioethical council. Um, and there still is technically, but like nobody cares, but people were actually like reporting on the, the product coming out of this bioethical council. And a lot of the questions were, you know, <laughs> around what, what is the status of, of essentially fetal life, very early fetal life, because there's a lot of research that is, is done on, uh, you know, on early fetal life. And then now we have the same question in terms of IVF. But it strikes me like the conversation, how much degraded the conversation is around it and how much immediately, even the right, right, even the Republicans after this decision, it was immediately disavow. I'm, I'm in favor. Uh, I'm in favor of this. And I understand why, because all the polls say like basically this is mm -hmm. um, people don't either don't know or don't want to think about the ethical questions involved because it's, it's OK. That's one question that we've been discussing, the status of very early embryonic life, human life. Um, th th there's another question, which is the Gattaca side yeah. of this, right? Yeah. Where, where we are now selecting for traits. Now it's not super, super sophisticated yet. Um, but if you listen to geneticists, it will be in short order and it already is at the very high income spectrum, right? That, that in the next five to 10 years, 15 years, we will be talking about selecting the possibility of selecting for height, for IQ, for eye color, right? And, and we are barreling towards Gattaca. Um, if I hope people have seen that movie. If you haven't, I, I recommend it. I think it's it's a great movie. But I had to watch it in in either middle school or high school science class. I think it was high school. Yeah, me too. Class. Like it was one of those movies they put on for when the teacher wasn't feeling well. Like maybe she went out drinking the night before and she had a hangover. <laughs> ah, we'll have the kids watch Gattaca. They'll watch Gattaca. Um, <laughs> They'll like Ethan Hogg. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it it is it is a movie that poses what is now a 
not so far in the future, very real possibility about, you know, the linkage. And we're seeing it, I think, in the discussion about race, but it's the smallest piece of this, the how much of who we are is determined by genetics versus choice or environment. And, you know, what is the right ethical posture towards selecting for quote unquote superior genetics? Um, and that's a huge part of IVF. It, it is. I mean, even if it's as simple as what, you know, what order you choose to implant these embryos, you know, people choose on the basis of sex because that's something that they know, right, early on. Right. Um, you know, these are, I'm not even saying, like, I don't have this, uh, I don't have an answer to this. I don't think, like, automatically, oh, like, this is, we should get rid of all of this. This is, like, they're, they're you know, the ethical problems with technology are too high. But the idea that it should be the Wild West and we shouldn't even have a serious discussion about the ethical consequences of right. this developing technology is, like, we haven't even had the discussion. It got immediately shut down. This, mm -hmm. this. Um, almost by accident, this this uh, Alabama case opened the door briefly to start talking about some of these things, and then immediately the door shut, and all the Republicans fell in line and said, "No, no, 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 we're in favor of IVF." Donald Trump, like, "Oh yeah, IVF is great, more babies, whatever." Right? Um, there's no th the discussion's shut down now, and it's because of I, it's to your point. It's because of the polling. It's because of where we are as a culture. I mean, the I think if you talk to a lot of hardcore pro life politicians. Um, you know, I, like even Freedom Caucus, people jumped on this really quickly. They would probably say, I think IVF needs to be done in a more ethical way. But it speaks to, you know, the New York Times coverage or a lot of the, the corporate press's coverage of what happened in Alabama was like these toothless rube Christian nationalists, because, of course, it dovetailed with Heidi Prisbilla's bizarre Christian nationalist story uh, that was released like literally almost at the same time about how the second coming of Donald Trump will mean uh, everyone is trying to push for the second coming of Jesus Christ in his administration uh, because they believe that people's rights come from God and not government is basically her definition of Christian nationalism. So you, you and, and how does she pronounce her name? Prisbilla? Prisbilla. Yeah. You, you and, and she have something in common. You've, you've anglicized your Polish last name. <laughs> uh, yeah, Russian. Uh, and as you keep erasing. No, and no, in I, fact, a part I don't of Russia. I don't believe you. Go do 23 I mean, You'll find I, it's from Ukraine or something. I'll show like, you. It is. It's from Ukraine. It's from a part of from, Ukraine. From the that Polish was, half of Ukraine. Yes, it's, it's, it's from a part of Ukraine that is now a part of... Uh, I'm sorry. It's part. It's from a part of what is now Ukraine, but was then Russia uh, when they emigrated over. Uh, I can show you the, I <laughs> well, can show you the documents. According to Vladimir Putin, it's all Russia. It's all Russia, right? <laughs> so uh, how dare you impose your globalist uh, <laughs> agenda? Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, I think it just was treated like a non-question. Like it was treated as Roy Moore putting the Ten Commandments up outside his courthouse. Like it reminded me a lot of the days when Bill Maher was do pushing his movie like Religious about how the, the toothless rubes who speak in tongues um, of the country's interior are plotting uh, to, you know, completely uh, Christianize and uh, not even just Christianize, but sort of radical. Um, what's the I'm trying to think of like a good cultural touchstone to this, but like they're, they're trying to uh, take over all of our institutions with this radical Christian political agenda. 
to bring about the second coming or whatever they think it is. And in reality, it's actually like a very uh, complicated and, and nuanced thing to grapple with. But the way that it was treated in the press, to your point, Inez, is a non-question. Like it's, it's totally, we've already dealt with this, even from the left. And by the way, there are feminists who are now coming out and talking about the way IVF and surrogacy are abused. Um, you know, speaking of Ukraine, uh, ways that, you know, people are doing the rent a womb and uh, you know, people are it's, creating. It's the, it's, it's the commodification of yes. human life. There there are so many ethical dimensions to this that are at, at minimum worthy of, of discussion and like societal input. Do we really want to live in a world right. um, where we're eugenically selecting babies, where we are commodifying the act of pregnancy or like it, it that's that's legitimate questions i i'm i'm offended on on your behalf as a evangelical christian um <laughs> because there seems to have been this weird cultural thing where like the religious right the christian religious right that is that bill maher was making fun of in religious right Everything that they said would happen more or less came true. And then the result has been to continue to dismiss them. Like the, in, in a fair world, right? We, people who, who maybe don't share the same bases or instincts would have said, well, maybe this is worth considering because like they said, these things would happen if we allowed free abortion and gay marriage. And lo and behold, they've happened, right? Like those memes that have aged really badly where they list the, the laughing, like mockingly list the consequences of gay marriage. And it's like, um, you know, the one thing is gay people will get married, but then it says like plagues, um, I can't remember what the other ones, but oh, uh, it was like people, polygamy, people, yeah. like, I don't remember, but all of them were very clearly in place right now. Um, <laughs> it's like the Alex Jones memes, right? Like Alex Jones predicted everything. Yeah, like the 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 reaction from, you know, secular people should have been, okay, well, Look, maybe we don't agree on on the sort of the, the theology of all of us, but and the metaphysics, but clearly, like something about this worldview was able to predict a lot of the things that we now all like, sort of sane people, even centrist liberals like Bill Maher, right, recognize that there's there's something going wrong in the culture, and these people predicted it before the rest of us. We thought it was easily separable that we could have this like these this sort of sexual libertinism or whatever, mm -hmm. and we could separate it out from the consequences um and there's just like no reconsideration and it's it's very unfair like actually um it, it's like the the contempt has not changed even though the predictions have been proven right yeah and, and it's totally the cliche of the frog in the boiling pot that we've talked about a million times and i think that people are starting to recognize now and i think that's especially true as the um, not just media, but sort of like Hollywood gatekeepers lose their power. Um, it, it's because it's such an ideological monolith in those communities and that in itself perpetuating, it's a self-reinforcing bubble. You know, you get into Charles Murray and all of that stuff with super zips and education. You know, people are going through these same filters and then filtering into the exact same neighborhoods where they're uh, also subjecting themselves to filtered social media feeds. So they have like so little like everything is curated and customized uh, and increasingly on the basis of uh, hate speech and bigotry and whatever, these ridiculous terms that filter out all opposing viewpoints. Uh, so the stuff that's kind of 
piercing those bubbles, uh, I think is getting really powerful and it's getting harder for people to ignore. But, you know, the, the sort of black pill on this is that there was nothing uh, when the IVF story came out. It, like everyone immediately, not even the, the Republicans who moved to like say this is not our platform or anything. They didn't say like, hey, this is a really complicated issue. Um, but, you know, we're totally pro IVF. They're basically just like we're totally pro IVF. Um, and the the conversation just moved right along. So, I mean, granted, we're here talking about it. Um, so, uh, you know, hopefully other conversations like this are happening in kind of distant media spaces. But uh, it, it, that's kind of the black pill. Yeah, the, the lack of discussion. Um, I, I want to close this out uh, just briefly by discussing trad wives. Um, because one, because I wrote a piece in The Spectator uh, about it. Great piece. It's, the title they gave it was How the Trad Wife Killed the Girl Boss Age, um, which I think is true to some extent, but I'm perhaps less emphatic about it than the headline. But anyway, um, I'm curious what you think about the trad wife phenomenon. It's been going on for like four or five years now. It seems to have hit the mainstream in a way that like before it was more of a niche internet thing for people who aren't familiar. The trad wives are um, influencers online who are uh, sort of putting forward an image of family, a home life. Often they have a lot of kids. They might be homesteaders. They make everything from scratch, right? Um, one, of, one of the funnier uh, things that, that uh, has been said about them is that they're a pipeline to white supremacy, which leads me to wonder what, what the pipeline looks like between sourdough starter and white supremacy. Um, but in any case, it's a, it's uh, a, a very white phenomenon. And then there's this huge backlash to the phenomenon, not just from the left, um, including from um, especially women on the right, I think, who say this is too idealized. This is like selling a false bill of goods. It's not really what homesteading or, or being a stay-at-home mom is like. It's, it's you know, it's a difficult job. Um, it, it, you know, we ought to give it a, a more realistic treatment. So where, where are you on all, all of this? Well, it's exactly the same continuation, I think, of everything we've talked about today, um, with the exception of probably Fonny, Fanny Willis. Uh, but starting with what we were talking about with Net Choice, it's just people are increasingly realizing that some of these uh, truisms that have been treated like they're unimpeachable are, are lies. That, like in, in some way, um, there's a, a kernel of you know, falseness in some of these like really big things that, you know, and as if, if, you know, you're like you and I, you grew up in the, uh, you, you and me, you grew up in the nineties and got some of the kind of girl boss logic. Um, you know, people realize that they've been lied to. And that's not to say the answer to the lies is going like performative trad wife, because some of the performative trad wives, it's like, as my colleague, uh, John Daniel Davidson, who is like actually a homesteader uh, in the you know, middle of nowhere, um, frontier country, as he says, like, if you're actually doing this stuff, you do not have time to film it for a vlog. <laughs> you're not putting it on YouTube and Twitter. So I, I don't think it's the right answer, but I think they're identifying the right problem. And I think uh, to your point, and I was like, this is it was, I think Ryan, uh, my co-host Ryan Grimm coined the hippie to QAnon pipeline uh, phrase. And I actually think 
that's going to happen more and more as the left and the political establishment clings to some of these lies. Uh, we're going to start seeing more people like from the left join forces with people on the right. And I don't know that we're going to have, you know, we don't really have monoculture anymore. So I'm not saying like the whole country is going to turn inwards. But I do increasingly feel like the real like America is, is hurtling towards being like giant Gotham. Um, where the the divide it's not necessarily a class divide so much as it's um it's not necessarily regional but it, it the regional divide is downstream of this this bigger divide versus like traditional and eac like total accelerationist um versus you know anti-accelerationist and again opposing all accelerationism isn't the answer either uh, but i think people are increasingly going to find themselves in that bucket as those accelerationists kind of cling to their lies or cling to uh, their optimism about what acceleration can be. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I do have some ambivalence around the trad wife stuff just because uh, to me it's, it is the performance of the intimate. Um, and there is something pornographic about that, right? Some of these accounts are literally pornographic in the sense that they're clearly selling a domestic ideal to horny young men and the husband yeah. is always off camera, right? Um, or horny and, young women who are like, look at my husband's pecs. And, you know, he, he gets this just from chopping wood. I like no seen, Peloton yeah, necessary. I, I, haven't, I haven't looked as much at those accounts, but it's true. But I'm talking even the, the women are selling it as sort of like um, – you know, they're dressed quote unquote modestly, but like very tightly. And they're, they're sort of bouncing in a self-knowing way while they're mixing the pie. And like, it's very clear that it's appealing to the purient. Um, but, but like that, that's true of all social media influencing and archetypes, right? It's not an accurate representation. Nobody is filming themselves scrubbing the toilet, like even though we all do it, right? Um, I mean, there are there, there are those accounts, but they're even worse, right? They're just making a performance out of being the most disgusting parts of everybody's lives. Um, so I have that sort of problem, but it's applied evenly. And the particular rage against the tradwives seems to me to be about the fact that these are usually beautiful and glamorous women who are choosing as their particular ideal and performance this kind of traditional life. Whereas nobody would complain like that ballerina farms woman is who's gorgeous and like walked the runway immediately after having her eighth kid or whatever. Right. Um, no one would complain if she had taken her Juilliard degree in ballet and um, had an influencer account where she talked about her life as a ballerina. Everyone would think that was wonderful, but because she's adding her natural glamour to living on a homestead and having eight kids, all of a sudden we have the think pieces from CNN saying that she's dangerous. Yep. Um, and I think that that is something worthwhile, but uh, we've come to the end of our time here. So uh, Emily, thanks. Thanks for spending another hour with, with high noon. It, it was, it was a pleasure as always to have you. And we cheated everyone out of an extra five minutes because I have to get on this uh, next podcast. We could we could keep going forever in this. <laughs> well, I'll let you I'll let you get uh, prepare for your next podcast. Emily has a hey a uh, incredible schedule because she's so much in demand. So uh, we're lucky to have her for this for this hour. So thanks, Emily, for giving it to us. Thank you, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.